This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or fate to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. Within each discussion, there is a live interactive audience who engages in a question-and-answer session with the guest in the podcast's second half. This episode is brought to you via the Ukraine sitrep room on Clubhouse, which has been continuously running since the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, surpassing 1 million unique listeners on April 20th of 2022. Want to learn how to participate? Stay tuned to the end of the podcast. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome back to Global Gambit. My name is Piotr, uh, and this time the Gambit is going theoretical. Uh, and we're going to be talking with Benjamin Tallis today uh, about his book and the concept of neo-idealism. Now, some context for listeners, uh, there are two prevailing themes when we talk about international relations, particularly realism and liberalism slash idealism. Now, realism is the uh, concept that states, countries are primarily concerned uh, with self-interest, survivalism, um, and that there is no actor that can be higher than the nation state uh, and that states act as unitary actors, you could argue, uh, looking out for themselves. Liberalism, idealism is the concept uh, that pushes back on this a little bit uh, and states that whilst countries are still self-interested, there are times when they can come together to work on collective interests, international cooperation, things like transnational issues, say climate change. Uh, and the idea of idealism really gathered momentum after Woodrow Wilson's 14 points in light of the Second uh, First World War. Um, but the idea of neo-idealism is something quite novel. Uh, and there was a very interesting thread shared by Benjamin on Twitter relatively recently that uh, many of my viewers and listeners were keen to discuss. So, Benjamin, I'm delighted to have you with us. Wondering, just to kick it straight off with, what is neo-idealism and where did you get this uh, concept for it? Thanks very much indeed, Piotr. Pleasure to be here tonight and good evening, everybody from Berlin. Uh, so, neo-idealism, where does it come from? What is it? Uh, it's, at the moment, a mixture of um, analysis of what's been going on over the last year, particularly of some certain European countries' responses, uh, but also transatlantic responses to Russia's renewed aggression in Ukraine. Uh, but it's also an aspirational conceptualization that seeks to actually draw this together, to give it a name, to actually give it some conceptual power and thus make it a platform for use. So uh, I don't take it as theory making in the uh, in the strict way that it's extremely abstract, um, nor do I take it in 
theory making or theory building uh, that is not of great relevance to the to the real world, quote unquote. For me, theory is always part of the world. And this is something I would draw from Irvin Kristol and others that ideas matter because ideas actually shape how uh, we perceive reality and how we perceive reality tends to affect how we act in it. Uh, so, as you mentioned, there are different approaches to international relations, and neo-idealism is a challenge to most of them. Um, I can talk a little bit later about the roots of original idealism in uh, international relations, and it's not not the same as idealism in philosophy, which is important to uh, to emphasize. But crucially, what is neo-idealism to give you an idea of something to grasp straight up there? It's a values-based approach to international relations. It puts values front and center of uh, how states and other actors should act in geopolitics and should approach grand strategy. Uh, it sets up certain uh, values as ideals to strive for. And those are things such as uh, human rights, um, democratic governance, democratic government, rather, uh, self-determination for uh, all democratic states, and the fundamental freedoms that liberal societies cherish. But also it, it uh, re-emphasizes the role of progress to those citizens in, in democratic societies as the payoff for those struggles to uh, achieve those and uphold those ideals. This, this has made a big difference in terms of Ukraine and responses to Ukraine. Uh, we've seen the influence that certain so-called neorealists like John Mearsheimer, Stephen Walt and others have had. And the way they've analyzed the situation there, where they've claimed that often that, um, you know, to simplify slightly, Russia's actions are a response to NATO enlargement. Uh, and that NATO was intruding on Russia's so-called sphere of influence. Now, from all the things I've just said, Neo-idealism obviously clearly rejects that. Why? Because it rejects the notion of spheres of influence. Uh, instead, it would see NATO and the EU as voluntary spheres of integration that democratic societies of their own volition choose to join. And that's that's something that they should have the right to try and do. They don't have the right to be accepted, but they have the right to try and uh, mm -hmm. join. And this rejection of spheres of influence is really important because what it really is is a rejection of imperialism and a rejection of the chauvinism that says um, large states or great powers in the international uh, relations terminology have the right to dominate others and that therefore smaller states uh, particularly smaller democratic states must be subjugated to their will sheerly by by dint of their geographic location and relative weakness and that's what we've seen Russia try and impose upon Ukraine and we've seen a really strong reaction against that from uh, the Ukrainians themselves for first and foremost, uh, but also from uh, states like Estonia. Their Prime Minister, Kaya Kalas, has been one of the standard bearers of neo-idealism. Same with the other Baltic states. Uh, Foreign Minister of Lithuania, Gabrielis Landsbergis, has been another of the standard bearers, along with his Czech counterpart, Jan Lipavsky. And what set their approach apart here is the way that they've really sought to combine very strong material support, huge amounts of GDP committed uh, to supporting Ukraine, huge amounts of their military budget, to supporting Ukraine and advocacy for the heaviest of weapons to be sent. But they've combined that with a moral approach that says this is this matters because Ukrainians are standing up for freedom and democracy. And that's what we should be doing, too. That's the right thing to do. So what this does is effectively break down the distinction between values and interests that's often made in international relations. And it sets up our values as interests because they're good to pursue in themselves. Uh, they're the right things for our democratic societies, but also because they're vectors of human progress that help us achieve our other secondary interests. So one of the things that you're saying and i think it's quite interesting is um about the ideas of values and interests or sort of how ideas shape international relations theories if 
for listeners, the two prevailing theories have obviously been challenged by subsequent ones, uh, one of which which gained quite notability in 1992 called constructivism. Um, and there's also been neo-realism, uh, as Benjamin has mentioned, and also neo-idealism in summer or neoliberalism. Um, so that's a subsequent question for you, Benjamin, which is, how does this differ to the schools of thought of neoliberalism, say, posited by Robert Keohane or John Eikenberry? Because those are, you know, slight modern interpretations of Woodrow Wilson's uh, ideas. And also, how does it differ to the ideas notion that constructivism plays? And don't forget the questions. Um, let me let me just say that um, neo-idealism draws on a number of different theories. It tries to save the babies from the bathwater of liberal internationalism, of uh, the original idealism in IR, which I'll talk a little bit more about in just a second, um, but also from neoconservatism. And it differs from each of those as well, but it takes something from each of them and tries to combine them in a uh, a way that actually does uh, better justice to the values and, and the interests, as well as the values as interests of democratic societies. Right. Now, the, I mean, as you rightly say, constructivism, which we could look even a bit further back to, to 1986 and John Ruggie uh, and Friedrich Krasikville's pieces from 86, then Nick Onoff in 89, then on to Alex Vent, which I think is what you're referring to in 92, um, which problematized a lot of the assumptions of uh, standard, standard issue realism and uh, liberalism. And to an extent, neo-idealism neo draws on that as well, because it doesn't see states as being fixed, hard-bounded entities that are immutable in their social interactions. It sees them also as being formed through social interaction. Um, and it sees that social interaction as crucial to understanding the identities of states. So identity matters. That's very much a constructivist point of view as well. So I, I do draw from those other theories too. And actually, most of my own research has been informed by post-positivist um, conceptions of international relations. Uh, and the, the other book I've just published, uh, Identities, Borderscapes, Orders, re reflects that a lot. But it's very unusual for people from post-positivist backgrounds to outline approaches to grand strategy, because they tend to be very critical of that. So I'm actually, I think, breaking a little bit of uh, potentially new ground there. So how does it differ from those other approaches? Differs from realism, as I said, in terms of giving agency to all states, including small states, and respecting the self-determination of all democratic states. Second, it, it um, rejects the primacy of power in international relations and puts values uh, strongly up there, but it doesn't say that power is irrelevant. Third, it also um, focuses on regime type, which realists don't tend to do. Realists are focused on the structure or neorealists focus on the structure of the international system, anarchy, as they, they would refer to it. And then the differing levels of material capabilities um, available to those states, primarily whether they have nuclear weapons or not. And obviously simplifying a bit here. But indeed, doesn't that sound a bit like liberal internationalism uh, of the kind outlined by Eikenberry in particular? Um, what what it uh, what new idealism shares with liberal internationalism is indeed that belief there can be progress in international affairs, which also comes from the idealist moment in uh, international relations, and that's a, a rejection of another part of realism, which sees has a so called tragic view of international relations, a tragic view of both power, which we're doomed to be um, governed by, and also people of the flawed nature of human nature in classical realist models. So thinking of someone like Morgenthau or yeah. um, that's going further back. But what's different about it compared to liberal internationalism is, uh, for one thing, a um, less of a focus on institutions. Uh, liberal internationalism became heavily dependent on international institutions as the ways of managing complex interdependence, whether for security or for economics. 
And it, to a certain extent, liberal internationalism ran out of liberalism uh, and focused instead on this, the international elements of it, the organization of this and management of interdependence, and came to rely far too much on institutional structures and rules, procedures and forms, rather than politics and outcomes. And that's why I think it's failed to actually deliver liberal outcomes in recent years. There's a very clear tension that's outlined particularly well, I think, by Daniel Nexon and Alexander Cooley in their book Exit from Hegemony uh, from 2020 in internationalism between um, cohesiveness on one hand, the like-mindedness and shared purpose that can actually drive uh, the political goals of an organization versus, on the other hand, inclusiveness and having a broad group of states included. And this this has meant that a lot of international institutions, especially the UN, which were set up as liberal institutions, have been able to be put to illiberal purpose. Uh, so the instrumentalization of the Security Council by Russia being just one very prom- uh, prominent example of that. The inability to do more about Hungary and Poland's democratic backsliding in the EU being another. So this this is something that neo-idealists reject, and they resolve that um, tension between cohesion and inclusiveness firmly on the side of cohesion and saying that actually this to get things done in a liberal way, we need to bring back the politics and the outcomes rather than focusing on the process and the form. Um, another thing that neo-idealism rejects from liberal internationalism is the way that it became entangled with neoliberal economics and how this, as part of the so-called rules-based international order, as we now tend to refer to it, rather than the liberal international order, which we talked about a few years ago, um, that has failed an awful lot of people, not only around the world. And it's interesting you mentioned Robert Cohane, no, no radical he, but together with uh, Jeff Colgan, they wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs back in 2017 saying the global order is rigged. And this is from one of the uh, the prime proponents of uh, institutional liberalism or liberal institutionalism. Mm-hmm. I think it's been clear that John Eikenberry has recognized this um, this entanglement with neoliberal economics hasn't hasn't done liberalism any favors. Francis Fukuyama, the same thing in his recent book. But I don't find their solutions to this compelling because they still hang on to too much of the old way of doing a depoliticized version of liberalism, particularly Eikenberry, I have to say there. So that, that's how I'd say this differs um, from liberal internationalism as it was, which has really run out of liberal steam. Do you want me to say a little bit about idealism and where that actually comes from? Um, I'm I'm quite interested, actually, in um, just unpacking a little bit more of the specifics you gave concerning, um, uh, well, we talk about, as you say, and for the audience, again, this is quite a academic theoretical discussion. Um, and a lot of the names that we're mentioning are, are, are sort of leaders in, in these fields of political theory uh, and concepts. But um I remember reading a very influential paper from Eikenberry about 12 years ago when I was starting my undergrad. Um, and, you know, you talk about the system, but what's interesting is this difference between uh, the countries that are in different regimes. You're very astute in pointing out that they don't take enough, I think, into account. There are different types of regimes which may still be classified as democracy, but one's a flawed democracy, one's a full democracy, one is an illiberal democracy, say Hungary, some hybrid hybrid regimes like Turkey. Could you unpack a little bit more how you see neo-idealism playing into these specific examples? We had uh, Francis Fukuyama on the podcast six months ago and we were talking about this sort of thing a little bit but i'd be interested to hear how you think that this can be applied to these kinds of um uh countries Uh, because we're in this weird democratic autocratic at least in some people's eyes uh you know war uh, on at the moment so i'd love to hear your your thoughts on that 
two of those eyes that you mentioned would be mine. Uh, I very much see that we're entering a period of systemic competition between democracies and autocracies. But as you rightly say, that simplification elides the variation that actually exists within those different uh, regime types. Although I think we can look clearly and say that um, regimes that could be loosely categorized as democracies will act differently in general in foreign affairs than uh, dictatorships will. Now, there's been there's exceptions to that, but nonetheless, I think it generally still holds um, particularly small state uh, democracies there. But this this actually does relate to the point about idealism. So I'm glad you brought it up because the question um, that I'm looking at really here is not only how do we revive the hope of progress in international affairs, which was one of the driving forces behind liberalism and the original idealism, but also how do we bring that to the domestic sphere? Because I think a lot of the root of our problems recently have been um, this loss of faith in, in the future. What Franco Berardi, who's a political philosopher, calls the slow cancellation of the future. And what he means by that is the progressive future, the future where tomorrow can be better than today, where our kids will live better than we do. And that driving force as a political faith almost um, animated European politics and democratic politics for close on 200 years um, after the, the sort of political instantiation of the Enlightenment via the French Revolution. We started to lose that in a serious way, and this has been sociologically attested to. Uh, people didn't think things would continue getting better uh, in the late 20th century, particularly in Western Europe and the US. And that's at the time of the oil crisis, uh, the oil price shocks, uh, the, you know, the winter of discontent in the UK, and the kind of thing that the neoliberals had to try and attend to when they came into um, to power. So Reagan's morning in America, uh, Thatcher's revolution in the in the uk would be examples of how that was attempted to be addressed and they may have done some some things we agree with some things we didn't uh, but certainly the the winning of the cold war and the democratization wave in 1989 did give this kind of liberal confidence in the west a shot in the arm again however that has subsequently evaporated with uh the global war on terror with um the great global financial crisis and with the more generalized loss of faith in the way that we are doing things in the West, um, in the face of things like climate change that we seem unable to get our act together in solving, but also in the face of the rise of the multipolar world. And the crucial thing for me here is to make sure that um, in the West, relative decline, which is due to the rise of others, doesn't become absolute decline in terms mm -hmm. of actually the collapse of the West itself. And so what I think is crucial to that is reviving this hope of progress and giving en enough people in our societies the tangible benefits of our supposedly, and I believe, superior system of democracy and freedom. And I think it's partly our economic arrangements, but also our political arrangements, which have suffered from the same malaise as in the international system, lack of meaningful participation in democracy, lack of feeling of control over one's own life, uh, lack of sharing of the benefits of our progress that we have made and of tech, of material gain in economics with enough of our population to actually make them feel part of this um, part of this process and part of our societies. And of course, that we've seen that's had implications for our resilience. Russia has been able to work in the cracks that we've made ourselves in our own societies. But it's also raised a lot of questions about who is included and who's not. And these bordering questions, I think, have an awful lot to do with this loss of faith in the future. And I think if we can solve that, then we can actually solve a lot of the other issues in our societies. But it comes back to one other point you made as well, and this might be my last one for now, is that um, the original idealists in international relations, you mentioned Woodrow Wilson, but there's also a whole group in the 1930s, mm -hmm. uh, Angel, um, Philip Noel Baker, Alfred Zimmern, and so on. 
they never called themselves idealists. They were labeled as this by E.H. Carr in a way to to contrast them with his own supposedly clear-eyed view of the world. And this, by the way, this is a line I often, often use these days, but the, the greatest trick that realism in IR ever pulled was calling itself realism. And this <laughs> is, I mean, it's, it's, it's an imposition of a view on the world as much as any of the other theories. But this contrast between realism and what Stephen Waltz has also recently referred to as woolly-headed utopianism uh, <laughs> is to make one seem better than the other. Now, the problem with the idealists is they weren't really idealists, apart from seeing there could be progress rather than tragedy in international affairs. Wilson went a bit further than that, and certainly making the world safe for democracy is an idealist position. But as we know, he was also, he had really, really bad uh, problematic views on race. And for me, that fundamentally, and many others, fundamentally undermines his claim to be a realist, uh, sorry, to be an idealist. Right. So what also I try to bring to this is a really thoroughgoing version of idealism that respects all the kinds of rights and freedoms across race, across um, uh, sexuality, and so on, that we've seen actually a progress towards in social and cultural terms in recent years. So it's marrying that domestic progress with inclusion and the upholding of liberal values together with international progress. I see. So, Benjamin, you've mentioned uh, Ukraine in passing, and I want to use Ukraine a little bit more as this case study. You have your book, To Ukraine With Love which I think is uh, is great, uh, From Russia With Love, uh, and a link to the book will be in the uh, in the show notes as well. Um, but just to your point about, you know, uh, I think there's a difference. I don't think we're necessarily in a quintessential Cold War. I do think we're entering multipolarity. I think we've been in multipolarity largely since 2008 in certain ways. Um, and I love the point you emphasize about relative to absolute, both be it in gains or decline or anything like that, because... Uh, I certainly do think that there's been an increasing challenge by certain countries to the Western or US-led uh, liberal interventionist or institutional order. Um, you know, Russia revanchism, China in a revisionist sense or whatever sort of technical academic term you'd like to use. Um, so where do you see and why do you see very simply Ukraine as such a epitome uh, of what you, you know, you're emphasizing neoliberal uh, idealism is? Um, and then why do you think that it could be, as a subsequent question, adopted or accepted or embraced by less democratic nations, if that makes sense? Because Ukraine is on the precipice of it either falls into the hands of Russia and likely becomes a bit of a Belarus 2.0, or it remains democratic and part of the West and, and more sort of uh, along that line. How do you feel about those two things? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And of this this theorization, um, which dare I say it, I'm not quite sure it's so abstract or distant than than people might than than you might say, um, comes directly out of observation of how, for example, President Zelensky has been acting this year. Uh so re- realizing the fact that in material terms, military power terms, he didn't have as much to to work with as Russia's military, whatever the failings of that that we've seen, which have been legion this year. Nonetheless, in sheer numbers terms, he was he was outgunned. Um, what he realized, and I think this this spoke to what David Frum has called called uh, recalling us to the best of ourselves, was that it was not only in his interests and Ukraine's interests, but also sticking true to the values of um, democratic societies to emphasize that Ukraine's fight was but one in the fight for democracy against autocracy. And we've seen this in uh, Zelensky's speeches in the book, uh, Message from Ukraine, and also in the speeches to parliaments um, around the world. What he's done is cite moral principle after moral principle. 
reminding countries of when they've lived up to their uh, proclaimed values and also when they failed to do, do so. And if you want good examples of that, look at when he spoke to the British Parliament talking about the finest hour and so on um, and really standing up against the Nazis, very much appealing to the British character and the British sense of self, uh, ignoring then other other aspects of um, of Britain's Britain's history. But when speaking to the German parliament, both emphasized very positive and also very negative moments in German history where Germany had either lived up to democratic ideals or had failed to do so. And what I think he's been doing is um, leveraging this material disadvantage via the moral character of the brave resistance of Ukrainians, who have, I think, stunned us all and inspired us all this year, and his own resistance. When he said, you know, the famous line, I need ammo, not a ride, that's a pretty brave thing to have done. And it really, uh, I think, set the tone for how he proceeded. And then say, well, why? Why do you need ammo, not a ride? What's worth this? Wouldn't it be worth to, to give in to stop the bloodshed? And consistently, Ukrainians have said no. They've said, actually, democracy is worth fighting for. Freedom is worth fighting for. We're clear where we want to go, what we want to be. We're also clear what the alternative is. And that's Putin's Russia that we really don't want. And we've seen what Putin's Russia does in the occupied territories. So I think there's there's very clear examples that say, okay, this is worth fighting for. And how do we actually combine what is in our interests, survival, with these values? And that's what Zelensky, I think, has found a real way to, to do incredibly well. And in doing so, he's reawakened a dormant form of politics across parts of Central and Eastern Europe and actually beyond that in the wider West. So you look at Kaya Kalas or um, Gabriela Landsbergis or even Artis Pabriks in the Baltics. When Pabriks spoke in Berlin, to put no finer point on it, um, responding to some audience questions at an event here last September, he very he looked the guy straight in the face and said, we're ready to die for freedom. Are you? So that becomes a bit less abstract at that point when you think about what our values are as our interests and why to actually set up our values as ideals to strive for. And to understand clearly there's a cost to be paid for doing that. Freedom doesn't come for free. But these leaders of the Baltic states of the Czech Republic uh, have very clearly said, we understand that cost. We're willing to pay it because the price of freedom is is one that we we value very highly. We've also seen this in the some of the rhetoric from the Biden administration and in the support of the Biden administration, although it's balanced by some of the more restraint uh, voice, restraint oriented voices in the administration. We've seen it in the speeches of Annalena Baerbock, most recently in Berlin, this is the German foreign minister, when she and in a memorable quote that was made in English, um, said to those who would draw a hard dividing line between our values and our interests that this distinction was, quote unquote, total crap. Uh, that was a great, uh, great line to have. Uh, but we could also see it in, for example, Liz Truss's short-lived uh, network of liberty that she talked about, which was then, of course, fatally undermined by economic policy, by the hostile environment on migration, and shows the importance of really being able to walk the talk. I've, I've, I've got uh, trust issues when you um, uh, when you get, talk about Liz Trust. Uh, trust. Um, <laughs> but uh, last question for you, since we're nearing the time of this uh, Zoom call. Unfortunately, I've got a time frame on this Zoom call. Um, but the last question for you then, and it's interesting. You talk about Zelensky, you talk about Biden, but I could also think about it from the, spinning it on its head in reference to Putin, right? We've always thought Putin was primarily driven by pragmatism, strategical drive. But actually, that essay that he wrote in July of 2021 uh, and the way that he looks at the sort of normative value of Ukraine and the identity of them to the Russians and the Belarusians and all this is, is you could argue, perhaps is, is sort of a, 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 an inverted version, maybe. Um, clearly, the guy is driven more by values than we thought. 
Um, and, and I was quite surprised to hear the way he feels about certain things uh, in more recent times as he's gotten more uh, agitated by the lack of progress Russia has made. The last question I have for you, though, is um, uh, why do you think that this theory has longevity? And second, um, how do you think it can be used to help either promote democratization in other states? Like, Ken- as I mentioned, Kenya has seen a good democracy, but there's been some issues there. Um, and how can it also be used to protect uh, democracies that are on the periphery? Yeah, good, good questions. Um, very, very quickly on this Putin as the dark side of this. Yeah, sure. I mean, other values are also available. I'm talking about liberal values when I'm talking about this, but it raises an interesting also borderline case here of Poland, which has been a huge material supporter of Ukraine mm. and international terms has done a lot to promote liberal ordering, self-determination of uh, democracies, fight for freedom, etc. But also what you do with that freedom rather uh, than counts. And the way that the peace government sets itself up uh, at home in restricting abortion rights or also deliberately attacking liberal values in many ways means that I don't see them as neo-idealist in the terms that I, I describe it. That's an important distinction. And when Morawiecki stands in Kiev and says, this is about defending our values, the question obviously comes, which values and who is the us he's talking about? So that's um, there. There's a really good distinction between what you mentioned about defending democracies and promoting democracy. And I think one of the big lessons that I've tried to learn from the failure of the neoconservativist movement uh, or neoconservative movement, but also from its its good sides, is that um, imposing democracy where it doesn't exist at gunpoint is a fool's errand that will serve no one. And especially when it's the commitment to it isn't really actually there in in the in a full blown way, but nonetheless, the commitment to economic exploitation that came along with it often was there is not something that we should be repeating at all. Moreover, I think it's hubristic to think that we could actually go and impose democracy where it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. By contrast, neo idealism is very much about defending democracy where it does exist and reviving it and making it real to itself, making it much more vivid version of democracy. Uh, again, I say by reviving progress, but also by living up to those other ideals that democratic societies uh, embody. There will always be uh, test cases uh, or edge cases here, but the primary part of this is to really give the democracies that exist and the ones, countries that were striving to be democracies, such as Ukraine, the chance to become the beacon that they claim to be and thus actually have the significant to or to revive the significant soft and transformative power that we've been able to enact in the past and encourage others to come to that way of doing things. That's how I think we win the systemic competition, not by going on adventures elsewhere, but by actually giving ourselves the chance to shine. So giving ourselves the chance for a liberal ordering and democratic systems, not only to survive, that's the defense part, but to thrive. And that's the progress part. So I think that's the distinction I would clearly draw there. Why do I think it's got longevity? Uh, Partly because these ideas keep coming back again and again and again. Um, If they were so bad, then you'd only have to kill them once. There's, But what I don't want is the undead zombie liberalism of recent years. Uh, What I want is actually a full-throated real liberalism that speaks to uh, our domestic concerns, links them properly to the international arena, and doesn't just rely, as I was saying before, on the sort of dead corpus of rules and institutions, but which really seeks to... um, embody a, a vibrant liberal politics that focuses on liberal outcomes and to revive the hope of progress for more of our people. Benjamin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for joining me on this episode of the Global Gambit. 
Um, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. You can find Benjamin's book in the description. Um, and I do recommend you give it a read. It's quite interesting and uh, it's giving me some genuine ideas. This has been a conceptual conversation, a little bit more theoretical. So if you want some ideas or suggestions of where to get a more basic understanding of international relations, then do feel free to get in touch at globalgambit at gmail.com or drop a comment. Uh, I always read as many comments as I can and DMs and things like that. Uh, and look out for future conversations. We've got General Wesley Clark in the pipeline. We've got Svetlana Sinhanuyeska. I know I screwed that up, uh, but it's a very tough surname uh, to say, and she is the people's leader of Belarus. So lots of exciting events coming up, uh, and I look forward to those as well. And hopefully Benjamin can join us again uh, as his book breaks boundaries and, uh, and is hopefully on the shelves of all major academic institutions in the future. But I've been your host, Piotr. Take care, everyone. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Global Gambit where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at The Global Gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time... This is The Global Gambit.